Lord, I pray that this morning the words that I speak would be your words and that they would be your words specifically that you have moved by your Holy Spirit to prepare within my heart and this on on paper. I give you the right to seal this show and to communicate what you desire. Lord, I pray that the work of your Holy Spirit would be present. Without it, these are just words because our sinful hearts um, can move so quickly and so far away from you. Lord, we, we just ask that you would visit us in a special way through your word this morning. We thank you for this Christmas season. We thank you for the opportunity to continue to celebrate it and um, pray that you would draw ours and, and many other hearts to you during this season. Pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was no revelation from God. We call this the 400 silent years, and this is because of the lack of his speaking to mankind. When the New Testament begins, the people of Israel have been living under the crushing domination of the Roman Empire. They're longing for deliverance, but God has been silent. Just prior to our passage this morning, the angel Gabriel visits a priest named Zechariah. He's the husband of the cousin of Mary, the mother of Jesus. He's told that his wife, Elizabeth, will bear a son in her old age. She had been barren for all of her life. And this son, John the Baptist, he'd become known as, would be the forerunner, Zacharias is told, of the coming Messiah who the whole Jewish nation had been longing for. Six months into Elizabeth's pregnancy, Gabriel visits a poor teenage young woman named Mary. We read in Luke 1, 26 through 38, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive and in your womb, conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And, his, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, your child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age 
has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing is impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now, what I want to get across to you this morning is that God's message to Mary announces unexpected grace. His message to Mary through the angel Gabriel announces unexpected grace. And, and it, we see this in several ways this morning. And I hope to point those out to you. Now, many years ago, a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, tells of his experience or his parents' experience when he mailed to them their Christmas gift. And it was one of the first microwave ovens. Now, their joy about, you know, entering into the, the convenience uh, world, <clears throat> their joy quickly turned to uh, disappointment when after reading the instruction manual over and over again, they could not get this microwave oven to run. Some weeks later, they commented on how useless the gift was and said, we don't need better instructions. What we really need next time is for our son to come with the gift and show us how to use it. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. In our passage this morning, God informs Mary that he's done sending instructions. But it now he will be sending his son. God's messenger tells her of the unexpect, unexpected grace of God sending his son to be the savior of the world. Verse 26 begins to set the stage for our conversation between Gabriel and Mary. Tells us that in, it was in the sixth month, again, it's the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, that the angel Gabriel was sent to, from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Galilee was not a place that most Jews expected for God to find someone that he would work so clearly through. The Jews of Judea considered the people of the Galilean region to be kind of uh, unclean because of their, their regular dealings with Gentile people. They were, they were kind of a buffer zone, if you will. Uh, Nazareth was exceptionally despised and it was a town of 2,000 people or less. It's been recently discovered by archaeology and, and identified, Nazareth has been, and it's been described as nothing more than a small town on the end of a donkey path. It was, it was insignificant and podunk. We would probably refer to it as Nazareth-Tucky, In verses 28 through 31, we see God's grace for Mary. It says, He came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God's interest in Mary was unexpected because, as I mentioned, she was from an insignificant, even a despised town. It was not just the issue of location. Individual social status was very important in that day, and it gauged who would talk to who and who would be involved with who. And typically, a person of higher status would not even greet a person that held a lower social status than they did. So being the age that she was and Mary's level of social and economic status, she was basically considered socially invisible. For the angel Gabriel to appear and to greet Mary as he did was completely unexpected, even if he were a human. This is part of why Mary is so confused, along with the fact that it's an angel speaking to her. The greeting itself is, is pregnant with meaning, and I mean that pun. The aspect that I'd like to draw your attention to is the idea of Mary being favored. In both Gabriel's greeting and in his explanation, he, he describes Mary as being a favored one or having found favor with God. This, the Greek term here is charis, which we've talked about before because it means grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor, which we can do nothing in order to deserve from him. It's the same term used in Ephesians 1.6, where God's work of salvation is said to be done to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has blessed us in the beloved, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. The idea that Mary was full of grace is not the true meaning of these verses. These terms are describing Mary as being the recipient of God's unexpected grace. It's obviously God's intention for us to understand it this way by having Gabriel say it twice. So the idea that Mary was full of grace, which is, is the way that some read this, actually comes from an unfortunate mistranslation in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, which, if you look at the history of it, was done under some pressure by the ruling church of that day. Mary was the recipient or the object of God's undeserving favor. You can recall that... Uh, well, th this is a way that a lot of people were addressed when uh, they would be used by God for his glory 
and for their good. You can recall Noah's family was, was the only family that was saved when God justly judged the wickedness of man with the flood. And, and when he first pops up in Genesis 6, 8, you can read, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What this term in the Old Testament also means is that Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Certainly Mary is a shining example of humility in, in service to God, but, but she's not the wonder woman that we make her out to be. She was, or, or that some make her out to be, I should say. She was the recipient of God's unexpected grace, which made her an excellent example to follow of one who receives grace. Why is it, though, do you think that we make Mary into something worthy of this honor? Or we've made, we consider Noah to be, well, Noah was super righteous, and that's why God saved him. No, Scripture says he found favor. He received grace from God. Why is it that we, we make people into the superheroes that we do? I'd like to propose, one, is that we don't really understand grace, and two, we don't like grace. Just allow someone to give you a Christmas gift. Or show up at your house with a plate of cookies and you have nothing to give in return. You haven't even thought of them. <laughs> it's pretty uncomfortable. It's grace. It makes us uncomfortable. It's the fact why th that we don't like grace that causes us to think of Mary as being full of grace. This is why people think that Noah deserved surviving the flood, as I said rather than being given the grace of God. It's also why we're uncomfortable with the idea that God must graciously open our eyes to see the beauty of salvation and initiate our relationship with Him. It all points to it being about His unexpected grace. And, and of course, the fact that she would give birth to Jesus is a major part of the very grace that Mary is given. But Mary wouldn't know until the following statements about the significance of this child. And we, re we learn about God's fulfillment in Jesus here in verses 32 and 33. These are amazing statements, which we're not going to focus as much on these statements. Rather, we're going to focus on how they are in some ways a capstone of Old Testament predictions. But it says, speaking of Jesus, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. These words screamed to Mary that her son, that she would miraculously bear, would be the very coming Messiah. We've seen the messianic hopes, of, as I mentioned, of the Jews throughout the Gospel of John, and we'll see it more. We need to better understand those messianic hopes. As I said, they were certainly coming to, into play within Mary's heart and mind when the angel spoke these words. See, nearly a thousand years early, earlier than this, King David wished 
to build a temple for the Lord rather than the tabernacle that the ark of the Lord was sitting in. The Lord told him that it wouldn't be him that built that temple, but it would be his son. And Solomon did just that. But David was told so much more about a king that would come from his descendants, though he thought it was referring to his son Solomon. And David is told in 2 Samuel verse, uh, chapter 7, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, you sh- who shall come from your body, I will, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. David knew that God was speaking of the final king that was promised to make all things right. Because David had messianic hopes as well. He held tightly to the Lord's promises and he writes about them in many of his psalms. Psalm 89 being one of them where he writes, You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And then picking up in verse 28, My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, still speaking for the Lord. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. David was looking ahead to when God was going to fulfill this messianic promise through his descendants that would be a person that would sit on that throne for all time, forevermore. After many more years, David's son Solomon rises and dies and And there's many more years of disappointing earthly rulers over Israel. The prophet Isaiah wrote of the rule of the coming king, and we're familiar with this from Isaiah 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Again, adding to what will be this Messiah that will sit on the throne of David forever. Who will this person be? And we learn from Daniel about the stone of Daniel's dream, which wiped out the statue representing all of the other kingdoms, including the kingdom of Rome. We read from Daniel 2 when we looked at this some time ago. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. I shall, it shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
all of this must have been rushing through Mary's mind as she is informed that she will bear the Messiah that will come to set his people free. Matthew adds that when Gabriel said that you will call him Jesus, which is Yeshua, which is the same as Joshua, which means the Lord is my salvation. He says you will call him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. There's an unexpected grace within Jesus' fulfillment of the Messianic promises. And we see the Jewish misunderstandings through John. Is it now? Is it now? What was unexpected was that you and me would be included. We see this throughout John, that Jesus keeps saying, but it's whoever, whoever. And we need to understand there that he's correcting the idea that the messianic kingdom was just going to involve the Jews. We see in John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John six thirty five. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Not just Jews, not just the Pharisees, not just those that thought they were righteous. We'll read in John 8, 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in John eleven twenty five, 25, we'll read Jesus say to Lazarus' sister, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. We can take part. We are a part of that whoever, as Gentiles, that take part in not perishing, in never hungering or thirsting, in having the light of life, in living even though we die. And this was an unexpected grace of this announcement to Mary, that this kingdom would not just involve God's people Israel, but would be expanded to include us as well. And this is a lot of the confusion that we see in John. In fact, what the angel is describing here will not be fully realized until the Lord returns and sits on his throne again. Our salvation, the salvation of the Gentiles, those like us, through the work of Christ was an unexpected grace. It was a grace that this king who was coming could be our king as well. I want, I, I want to picture a story. Let's imagine a story together, all right? It's a story of a set of orphaned teenage brother and sister. They've lived most of their lives on the streets of a large city. Due to trouble in their poor decisions, he's resorted 
resorted to robbing strangers. And she has resorted to giving strangers her body. One day these two see a bunch of commotion one block away. They hurry over to see what's going on and find it's a royal procession with, of dignitaries and dukes and princes. It's so amazing that they find themselves reverting to the children that they were never able to be. As they stretch out their necks to see the guest of honor, they see that the marshal, the grand marshal, is the king of their land. This street thug and his, his lonely sister never imagined that they would be able to be so close to such important people. Then imagine that once the king's carriage comes to their spot on the parade route, it stops and the doors open. The king's men come to them and move quickly to keep them from running away. Then they grab them and and take them kicking and, and they realize that they're being placed into the king's carriage as his guests. The king then turns to him and his sister and says, it's been my plan all along to include you in this ceremony. Enjoy the ride. We'll come back to this story, but this is the unexpected grace for us as Gentiles of whoever believes. It's that we are able to be a part of the kingdom of the one that Mary's people had been hoping in for 2,000 years. It's why Christmas is so important to the entire world. It's the birth of the world's king of kings, the world's prince of peace. Now, Jesus would legally be the child of Joseph the carpenter, and this made him a descendant of David, as was Joseph, and a rightful heir to the throne. Still, we read that he would be born to Mary while she was still a virgin. We see here God's ability to, with impossibilities. In verses 34 through 37 here. Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Mary has one detail that she needs clarified. The question here is literally, how can this be since I have not known a man? She's betrothed to Joseph, but that meant that they were basically husband and wife, except for the fact that they did not live together and did not know each other sexually. I imagine her wanting to ask, is it possible that you're here a year early? We read, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. 
Gabriel explains using Old Testament Shekinah glory terminology. Just as the cloud would rest over the tabernacle to show God's presence, God would do a mysterious work in Mary's womb. I love this statement in verse 37 made by Gabriel just after he informs Mary of the pregnancy and of her, of, of her aged relative Elizabeth. He explains that both Mary and Elizabeth's expecting children with the fact that nothing is impossible with God. You see, over 2,000 years earlier, the Hebrew people were only a promise to a man named Abram who had his name changed to Abraham. He was told that he would be the father of many nations, but he was 100 years old and his wife Sarah was 90. In Genesis 17 and 18, both Abraham and Sarah laughed at separate times when they heard God say that they would bear a child. In God's sense of humor, he told them that they would name their child Isaac, which means laughter. What's, what's, what's most significant from this is God's response in Ge Genesis 18 when Sarah laughs about the prediction. Genesis 18, 13, and 14 says, The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is the same as the statement says to Gabriel, from Ga by, said by Gabriel to Mary. Nothing is impossible with God. I, I, feel, I feel bad for the people that deny the possibility of, of the virgin birth or, or of other miracles in the Bible. In a sense, they believe that there are things that are impossible with God. What's funny is, if you said Jesus being who he was, doing what he did, and, and, and left out the virgin birth, just kept it out completely, the same people would say, well, how could just such a regular person just do such things? Well, he wasn't regular. And as being born of a virgin, it's just the beginning of that. So let's look at what we see here as being the importance of the virgin birth. It says, therefore the child, so Gabriel explains the, the Holy Spirit overshadowing Mary, and then says, therefore the child to be born will be called holy, the Son of God. That idea that it was the virgin conception that allowed Jesus to be holy still is what we're hitting at here. The therefore of this sentence means that Jesus' holiness was tied to his being born of the Holy Spirit rather than by a man. This is because of the fact that we receive our sinful nature as a result of our connection to Adam. Jesus did not have a sinful nature 
because he was born of the Holy Spirit and, and he was fully God in that sense too. But, but let me share with you some verses that back up what I'm saying here in terms of us receiving our sinful nature from Adam and such. Romans 5.12 tells us, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5's teaching that our tie to Adam means that we are born with a, a bent to rebel against God. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, we're told, For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Here we read that the death that we deserved because of our sin that results, I'm sorry, the death that we deserve because of our sin results in our, is a result of our being tied to Adam. In him we all died. But what scripture calls the second Adam, Jesus was the only man who did not sin, yet he took our sin and our death in order that we might live. We find in Luke 1.35 the reason why Jesus was able to be sinless was that he was not born of the seed of man. His virgin birth allowed him to remain holy, born without a sinful nature, still the righteous son of God. And of course, this was in fulfillment of prophecy that you can read in Isaiah 7. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Emmanuel. So 700 years earlier, his birth, which would make salvation possible, was foretold. And the birth could only be outside of the work of a human father if he were to remain without sin. Let's think back to our, uh, the story of these teenagers on this parade route in the carriage of the king. These young people spent their years doing things that made them ashamed. They've ridden in the king's carriage for the entire parade. It took a while, but they finally became uh, comfortable waving back at the crowd. When the parade route comes to a stop, they assume that their moment in the spotlight is over. Or worse, they fear that it'll be made known that they are criminals in the king's city. At this point, the king turns to them and tells them that he knows everything that they've ever done, said, or even thought that was wrong. He knows every wrong thing. He also reminds them of the penalties for the laws that they have broken. Then the king turns the conversation to his son. He tells him about how proud he is of his accomplishments. He brags about how his son has never done, said, or thought an unrighteous thing. The two teenagers wonder if this has become a chance to rub their noses in their choices and their plight. Just then the king informs them that his son has taken all of their sins and their shameful acts on himself. He says that his son has paid their penalty 
And best of all, the king tells them that his doing so has allowed for the king to adopt them as his children if they should desire. This is what it means that what first, 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us. For our sake, he made him, being Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin. So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. And his virgin birth was an integral aspect of this. The purpose of the virgin birth of the Son of God was to offer unexpected grace. Everybody that thought they were righteous, that thought they were fulfilling the law, that were going beyond the law, were lined up. It must be me. But he came to offer unexpected grace. That his would be sinless but would take our sin on himself as a fit sacrifice. And all that we would need to do is to repent of our sins that have separated us from him, to believe on Jesus in his death and his resurrection for the payment of our sins. And the Holy Spirit would then indwell us as a guarantee of our relationship with God and our inheritance with God. This is the unexpected grace that goes with the fact that God's sinless son would take on human flesh. Let me ask you a couple Christmas questions here. If you have received God's unexpected grace, what unexpected grace will you show to someone else this Christmas season? Maybe it's forgiveness towards someone that you feel has wronged you deeply. Maybe it's financial help for a struggling family. Maybe it's reaching out to a family member that you feel like deserves to spend Christmas by themselves. Jesus' unexpected grace meant that he would sacrifice his life for us. You showing grace just might mean that you sacrifice your pride, it might just mean that you sacrifice an extra gift under the tree. You might be sacrificing your right to feel wronged by someone else. You might be sacrificing your comfort and having an extra person at dinner. Whatever it is that the Lord might be laying on your heart this morning, showing someone in, in terms of showing someone else unexpected grace this Christmas, let me challenge you to respond the way that Mary, Mary did to Gabriel. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Listen to God. Let him show you how you can pour unexpected grace on somebody else. Let's close in prayer. Father, For you to turn your planned corner in history and include us is a grace that's unimaginable, that's undeserved, 
that is um, for the last 2,000 years of history would have been completely different. Thank you for including us as Gentiles into your plan. Lord, I thank you for the grace of salvation. Lord, I thank you that it sits like a gift under the Christmas tree with our name on it, just waiting to be opened, all paid for, all taken care of. Lord, I pray that each person that comes through the doors of harvest will have received your Son as their Savior, will have the Holy Spirit indwelling them, will know what it means to follow you. Lord, I pray that this Christmas season you would show us opportunities that we have to show the grace that we've received to others. We could never, ever do enough to match what you have given us. But I pray, Father, that you would bring opportunities across our path and bring things to mind and give us the faithfulness to obey. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.